After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me today, as always, is Joe Healy. We are recording this on Monday, April 6th. You are listening to this sometime after that, probably on the 7th, I would guess. Uh, it is, you know, we, we have turned the corner into April. There, There is no baseball on the horizon, but the podcast continues. We're, we're going to, we are committed to continuing two times a week uh, for the foreseeable future. We, we still feel like we have a lot to talk about. Uh, and the plan is that the first show of the week, which will drop on on Tuesdays, is going to be a newsier version of the show. Last week, of course, that meant we talked uh, exclusively about the Division One Council's decision to extend eligibility relief to all spring sports athletes. Today, we have no such uh, major news, but but we will still make this the newsier portion of the show. And then the second podcast of the week, which releases on Fridays, will continue to be our uh, series of, of Joe and I rewatching classic college baseball games, bringing on a guest who is a participant in that game and, and discussing that game. And I think that is also where we're going to put anything uh, more fun that we want to throw in there. A lot of college teams are releasing brackets. I have committed us to talking about the, uh, the Texas dance bracket, for instance. Uh, and, and so that is, I think that is where we're going to put those things. So if you are, if you are here for the news, if you are here for the college baseball stuff, this show should be uh, all about what, what you're looking for. So Joe, having said all of that, uh, how are you doing as, as the calendar flips to April? Uh, so far, so good. We are uh, in the time of year that I believe we lovingly call Pollen Palooza. Here in North Carolina, as I look out my window, I can see all the pollen just kind of hanging on the trees and uh, just waiting to be blown around and cover our cars and our faces and and all that jazz. But uh, we're we're hanging in there, and it's it's nice that uh, this, I guess one of the positives of, of this happening at this time is that we're at a period. I guess everybody likes different seasons, but I tend to like the springtime. Part of that is tied into college baseball, I think. Uh, but so it is kind of nice the weather is warming up. Like it's been a little bit sunnier the last few days. Uh, that has all uh, all been helpful, provided a nice backdrop. And I think, and we'll obviously this is going to be the topic of the show, the eligibility relief and that discussion. I felt like that has kind of reinvigorated me personally, uh, but also kind of reinvigorated the sport a little bit. Now that can be positive or negative. I think the positive is okay. We have some, you know, we have some direction now. We kind of know what we're dealing with. The negative, of course, is that well now we have to kind of untangle the. The rat's nest, if you will. So there's there's work to be done there. But I think uh, over the last week uh, there there has been a lot of discussion around college baseball, and I think for the most part positive discussion about the eligibility relief decision by the Division One Council. So I think that's all been good. And so while we are still bummed that we don't have college baseball and will not have college baseball at least for some uh, some period of time here, it has been kind of nice to talk about relevant college baseball stuff, even if it is just talking about you know rules and 
you know, rulings and, and decisions and, and what that means and, and things like that. So uh, better than, but certainly better than nothing and excited to talk a little bit about, a little more about it today and kind of project forward into 2021 and, and talk about when we will actually have some games. Yeah, there definitely are times that I, I really, you know, like getting into NCAA rules stuff. I got to say, this isn't really the way I want to do it. Um, there are so many complications. I like it more when you can, like, focus on, like, oh, this is what's going to happen with the transfer decision. You know, if, if they eliminate the or if they extend a one-time transfer exception to, to all athletes, this is what that'll mean for baseball. Like, this, the, the, the eligibility decision... Uh, opens up so many different possibilities that it's like a little hard to put all put your arms around the entire entire problem. But we're gonna we're gonna try and do that not only today but uh, over the next I imagine several months. I I've been saying you know these are not days and weeks decisions. These are more weeks and months decisions. I know everyone is looking for answers as soon as they can uh, get them, and, and I certainly understand why that is, but. This is also an unprecedented situation, and they truly are making this up as they go. And while that phrase usually is used derisively, I, I don't mean it in that way. They really are making this up as they go because there is no playbook. They, they have to make this up as they go because there's, there, there's no precedent. There, there's nothing to go off of uh, to, to lean on. There, there is just this one time that entire uh, season's worth of, of all sports have been canceled and you have to to work things out from there so it's uh it's going to be an interesting time if you're into that wonkish stuff if you're not um well i don't know what else i got for you because again there, there are no games so this tune is... into the friday podcast if that's not your thing <laughs> yes I, I guess that that is that is fair joe that that is that is where you go if you want if you want the game content you gotta you gotta come back here on friday uh today will be a little wonky uh as it were so I guess it's been now a week since the Division One Council uh, made its ruling that all spring sports athletes were, were getting a year back. And, you know, Joe and I have both been working on some different projects to, to kind of try and, and figure this out, uh, attack this from, from multiple sides. But in that week, we have seen some early announcements about players coming back or players not coming back. There's a lot still to be decided here. The Ivy League did rule that they will not lift their ban on graduate students. So in the Ivy League, they don't they don't let you get more than the four years, uh, and you, you get the you you still have all of those years per the NCAA, but you just can't use them at the Ivy League. Uh, so you see a lot of Ivy League grad transfers in a normal year. And this year, I think you're going to see even more. So uh, that, that is one thing that has been decided is that the Ivy League is not changing its rules. That, to me, is not a surprise. We can talk about whether that's good or bad, uh, but I am not surprised that the Ivy League did not adjust in this case. What that does mean, though, is that the Ivy League grad transfer market is open for business and that business will be robust this year, I imagine, as more players will be interested in continuing uh, their their careers. But you also do have to remember that, um, you know, like I mentioned, or I have been mentioning for several weeks now, it is at the time it was late March when the decision was reached. It is now April. 
and you know kids have job offers or graduate school lined up already and how many of them are going to be willing to suspend those plans or delay those plans how many of them even can delay those plans to play another year of college baseball and you know i in the case of these ivy league seniors you now would be having to do that while moving to another school so that that adds a whole nother layer of the process some of them undoubtedly will a lot of them undoubtedly will not. So we'll we'll see where that goes. But that that is one thing that that was left unknown last week, that has since been decided is that the Ivy League rules will, will not be changing. So we've seen some schools like Duke, like Wake Forest, uh, play that market well over the last few years, and I, w- I would anticipate they they can do so again if uh, if they can make it work. Um, there are a lot of transfer concerns and. Uh, you know, roster balance issues that that aren't normally in, in play that are, of course, this year. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. But, um, you know, I, I don't know that either Joe or I is prepared to, to tell you which Ivy League players are the players to watch in that context. But that is something broadly to watch, particularly if you are a fan of a school that is a little more academically inclined. Yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously, the Ivy League was very front and center with this. Um and, and, and that was not a surprise necessarily. I mean, I know you and I had talked offline. I don't know if it ever got on the podcast, but talked offline about the, the possibility that this was going to be the case with the Ivy League. And I think you can use kind of reasoning to come to the conclusion of what other, maybe not at a conference-wide level, but certainly at an individual program level, what other types of programs or specific programs might make a similar decision just institutionally. Um, and so as we know more about who's in the transfer portal, I think you'll be able to, even if it's never really announced officially, and if it's not part of uh, some sort of declaration, what schools have chosen to kind of take a similar approach. Now, that could be expressed in a couple ways. It could be a smaller, private, academic, academically oriented school that just kind of takes the Ivy League model, or it could be a school that is just not willing to financially push a program over 11.7, and the easiest decision is to just to kind of you know, have seniors move on. I mean, that's going to be individual decisions made. But I think, you know, the Ivy League is is, is making it an, an official declaration. I think you're going to see it unofficially, um, perhaps at, at a lot of other places. And I, I had a conversation with a coach earlier this week who used a, a phrase that I won't repeat on the podcast to describe what the transfer portal is going to be like this summer. Um, needless to say, he thinks it's going to be a we'll call it a mess. We'll say a mess. Um, and I think um, I think he's probably right, it, just in terms of the number of players coming and going. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. And we should also note that the Division One Council was previously expected to rule on the one-time transfer exemption uh, being applied to all sports. Currently, it's applied to all sports except for baseball, hockey, both basketballs, and football. Uh, the, they would be looking to allow every student athlete the the chance to transfer once in their careers without having to sit out provided they met uh, a few um, small benchmarks i would say in terms of academic progress for the most part and that vote may be pushed back until early june there has been some talk of that uh, but they are expected to rule on that this spring and the the broad expectation is that athletes will get that exemption and be able to transfer more. And that is also part of the reason why coaches think that the the transfer market 
will be so hot this year is that uh, the last, you know, baseball used to be exempt from, from this rule. Players used to be able to transfer and play right away. And back then the transfer market was very hot. Uh, so combine, combine that experience with, you know, what you see even in basketball, men's basketball now, where there's a ton of transfer movement, even with them having to sit out. And then this situation where kids are going to be a little more worried about playing time than usual. And you, you get a lot of expected movement over the summer to say nothing of the, um, you know, idea that there, there may be new realities that the kids and families are, are working through. Like I mentioned last week, you know, do, do you want to travel so far away to go to school? Would you feel more comfortable being at home? You know, uh, can you still afford out of state tuition because on a partial scholarship, uh, you know, that's, that's something that everyone has to, has to take into, into account. So that is, uh, that's what we expect for the summer. Um, and, but you're already starting to see it because the season is now, of course, over. So you can um, kind of get a head start on that if you're in a situation where you know that you'll need to be looking elsewhere if you want to continue playing as, as a senior in 2021. Uh, but Joe, let, let's talk about uh, you know, some, some of the places that have already made early announcements in terms of kids coming back. Because uh, you're going to see those announcements more than you're going to see announcements that the kids aren't coming back. The, that there will be a lot of there will be some kids that do announce that and some programs that announce that, but there will be a lot of ones that just kind of, uh, you know, it gets pushed under the rug that that's what's happening. But Oklahoma, I would say, is uh, has made a, a definitive early statement with this. They they have six of their seven seniors have already said uh, they intend to return in 2021. Yeah, it's it's a, a really good group, um, and not just um, not, not just seniors. It, it, I mean, you want the experience in general, but these are really quality seniors, which is kind of the difference between you know what you see in the power programs and what you might see at a mid-major level. Uh, you know, power programs that are expecting to compete for conference and national titles don't typically have big senior classes, and, and Oklahoma just happens to um, have a big group that's going to be returning, and these are names. College baseball fans will, will recognize it's Brady Lindsley and Jason Ruffcorn, Brandon Zaragoza, among others. Uh, Oklahoma will still have some things to work through. I, I imagine Cade Cavalli will not be back. I would imagine he ends up beginning his his pro career. But, um, you know, they they could get just about everybody else back. And that was already a team that that started off the season ranked highly and then really just kind of improved their standing as as time went on. And I would have been very curious to see. Um, what they ended up accomplishing. And, and obviously, I guess we'll get a chance to see them run it back in, in 2021. It remains to be seen. Um, you know, I mentioned Cavalli going, but does Levi Prater get popped? Does Dane Acker get popped? I mean, those guys feel pretty borderline for what, depending on how many rounds a draft is. If it's 10 rounds, it's certainly more likely than if it's five rounds. But So those are the questions they'll have to answer. So from their standpoint, it's probably kind of nice that maybe they're not going to have to answer quite as many questions thanks to the senior class being in, in, in essence a, uh, a whole nother recruiting class that, that maybe they weren't expecting to have again. No, by the way, their actual recruiting class on signing day was a top 10 class. I'm in the process of, you know, re- reopening the 2020 class rankings to expand them uh, from 15 teams to 25, but uh, Oklahoma still looking really good and on, on the re- actual recruiting front. And then, yeah, you get this, this senior class back and, 
So now that'll be up to, to Skip Johnson to figure out how to fit all those pieces together, keep everyone happy and developing, uh, because while the caps on, you know, the, the, the roster cap has been adjusted so that seniors don't count to it, you still can only put 25 guys or 27 guys, excuse me, on your travel roster, uh, especially in conference play. I, you know, we'll see if that gets relaxed a little bit, but no matter what they do with that, you can only put nine guys on the field at once at the end of the day. So we'll, we'll see how that all comes together. But on paper right now, Oklahoma looking very strong for 2021. And that's a team that, that really played up to, you know, props to Joe for, for calling how good the Sooners were going to be this year. In the early going, they, they were definitely living up to the hype that, that Joe uh, threw on them. And, and we saw how good they were. You know, in that series win against Virginia on opening weekend and, and at the Shriners College Classic in Houston, the, those two weekends especially, they, they were very good. And, uh, you know, it seemed like the, the arrow was absolutely pointing up. And we'll, we'll see now if they can carry that over into 2021 when they won't have Cade Cavalli at the front of the rotation. But they're going to have a lot of really exciting pieces around the diamond. So that it's good news for the Sooners. Joe, have you noticed uh, anyone else? Um, making early early moves, early commitments in terms of, uh, of of seniors coming back. Yeah, the other one that really stood out to me was McNeese State, and, and we'll get into a larger mid-major conversation here shortly, but uh, McNeese State, not only just from the volume of seniors they have back, because they had a very good senior class. When, when I picked them to win the Southland Conference, it was in large part based on um, those seniors. Now, they had some other pieces, Will Dion most notably, but that senior class was really, really good, really with some guys who I think could have been good pros and may still be good pros. Um, but they very quickly were out there on social media, um, you know, putting it out that these guys were going to be returning. And it was, a, it was a large group, like I said, a quality group. And now, you know, I talked to, to Justin Hill um, actually just earlier today about them. And, and he admitted like, you know, some of these guys, if they're still going to get an opportunity to play pro baseball, this could change. And, and he wants them if they get that opportunity to have that opportunity. But barring that, these guys are, are going to be returning, but he, he, they really, he and his social media team really took it a step further and wanted to give them a signing day moment where they come back and, and not only, uh, you know, they did what Oklahoma did where Oklahoma had a, a graphic with, you know, all the players listed there and, and one picture, but each of these players from McNeese gets their own graphic that says back in the saddle um, and shows They're the Cowboys, know, by the way. Right, exactly. McNeese State Cowboys. So back in the saddle and some players even hammed it up a little more and had cowboy hats in their picture in the graphic. So, I mean, they're having fun with it, which is which is kind of nice to see brings a levity to it. Uh, But the serious part of it is that, you know, uh, Justin Hill told me that, you know, the administration really bent over backwards to uh, make it so these players could come back uh, and and have it make sense uh, for the program. Um, you know, he he admitted he himself ha- has been looking around for ways to kind of help with the budget. And some of that will be in a story I've, I've got coming this week. But, you know, so he's kind of looking to find places here and there. But but he was really effusive in his praise for the administration, for allowing it to happen, for the social media team that took it upon themselves to kind of make it a moment. Uh, and also for the players just to be committed to to coming back for um, for another year. So that's another one that really stuck out to me. You have seen some on the other end. You mentioned, you know. You're, you're going to see less of 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 now annou- less announcements of 
players deciding not to return. And I, and I totally agree. Eastern Illinois is one that stands out for me on that side, just a smaller program that, you know, for guys who aren't coming back and I don't know that it'll be all of them necessarily, but at least a handful so far have done just kind of first person videos, um, kind of expressing gratitude and, uh, for, for their experiences and, and, and all that. So that's kind of an, a nice send off for those guys. So I think there will be some of that, but you're right. I think it's mostly from what we see front facing anyway, announcements of, of people coming back. And so, um, you know, Oklahoma and McNeese being two teams that get out there right away with this is not necessarily just to spring it forward a little bit, not necessarily good news for uh, the big 12 and the Southland conference, because those were two very good teams that look like they're going to be in really good shape again in 2021. Those were two teams that, that we were excited about this year. And, you know, they have, well, if they have all of that coming back, it, it's it's going to be pretty impressive. And I, on McNeese, I was impressed that, you know, it's not just seniors there. Uh, Kale Bro, uh, I believe, is a redshirt senior already. And, and he was among the ones listed that, that are coming back. So, you know, that's coming back for a sixth year of, of college. And, uh, you know, I, I, Justin Hill, before the eligibility, decision came down i believe on the monday or maybe the sunday night before tweeted a pretty long very thoughtful uh opinion piece about what he thought they should be doing in terms of the division one council and, and why he thought that and in there he does note that it takes the average i don't remember if it's the average student or just the average student athlete five years to finish college uh so you know, there, there is there are going to be guys who are graduated and done in four years. Certainly there are guys that graduate in less than four years. Uh, but there, there are certainly a lot of them out there that, you know, can use this fifth year to actually finish their degree, which would be a, a very positive thing uh, overall as well. So one thing that, you know, I we talk about in baseball a lot is that how seniors aren't actually that prevalent on rosters and uh, you know, how, how many kids is this really going to impact uh, if a lot of seniors don't return and, and, and all the rest of that. So I've been kind of trying to to answer that question a little bit. And I don't I, I, I've just basically come to the end of collecting data. I haven't really gone through a whole lot of the analyzation yet. Um, that'll appear on on the website hopefully today. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, if you're listening to it after Tuesday, I'm sure it's up there. You can check it out over at baseballamerica.com and see what conclusions I came to. But the the short answer on who had like how many seniors are there and and, and where are they is you know it, it does fit the the larger you know trends that that we talk about in in college baseball that if you're looking at probably the top 40 or 50 programs in the country no, they, they do not have all that many seniors on them. And, you know, that really shows if you look at just power five data, uh, there were 61 schools in the autonomy five conferences or more commonly known as the power five conferences and that the play baseball, they average 3.84 seniors, uh, on the team, and that, that's true seniors. If you throw in redshirt seniors, they're averaging just about five seniors on a team. So some of them certainly have, you know, more than that. Uh, Iowa kind of popped with uh, with ten 
seniors and, and, and redshirt seniors. I believe they are the they are the leaders in, in that regard. Alabama just behind with nine. There are some with very few. Arkansas has zero true seniors and just one redshirt senior on its roster. Uh, Clemson, just one senior, no redshirts. Th- those are, I would say, also outliers. It's usually, though, they, they have a couple. And so if you're looking at it from just the biggest schools, from the schools you see on TV the most, there are, it, it is accurate, there are not that many seniors on those rosters. There are, though, when you start looking a little further down, uh, you do start to see some more seniors. And so if we expand this from just the the Power Five uh, to include conferences like the American and the Big West and Conference USA, the Missouri Valley and the Sun Belt, you do start to see those numbers going up and it gets closer to six seniors on a roster. So it's about the increase of, of one extra senior. And, you know, if you know, the American, I think the, their, their data fits with the, the five biggest conferences, uh, they'll, they'll be very happy to know that in this case, it is kind of a power six, and, except that it, it's more of a power seven because the Big West data also almost completely reflects the, the bigger conferences. But it, it, when you start getting further down, you know, into a, a conference like the Missouri Valley, you start seeing more seniors. You start seeing more seniors in like the colonial, and so the further you get away from the 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 biggest schools, the biggest money, the the best programs, the more seniors you're going to see. Now, does that mean that they'll have even more seniors back? I don't know because it, the further you get away from those schools, the more or the, or the less likely, excuse me, that it is that that anyone is going to play professional baseball, especially as a senior sign. So you have some conflicting realities there, but broadly speaking, there are probably five or six kids per team. Uh, maybe it'll be a little more than that if, if you expand this to all 302 Division One college teams, and maybe it would get as high as seven seniors on, on a roster. Uh, so it, it is about a fifth of, of the, the roster, it, it seems like, are seniors around college baseball, broadly speaking. But if you're just looking at the biggest schools, it is a much lower number, and they are going to be much less affected by this. Honestly, they're going to be more affected by the crunch uh, as it relates to the draft being drastically shortened. Joe was talking about with Oklahoma, you know, guys like Acker, uh, you know, having to make a decision on, on the draft and will they a five versus a 10 round draft would make a huge difference there. But in terms of the, the seniors, the, the, the bulk of them are playing in mid to low majors. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's going to create kind of an interesting dynamic because the, the, the bigger programs versus the smaller programs are getting pushed in, uh, getting pressure applied in different directions. You know, you, you, you alluded to it, but uh, these mid and low major programs are mostly getting pressure from the situation with the seniors. And if you're a program with a lot of seniors, you've got um, the conversation obviously starts with what you're going to be able to do from an administrative standpoint uh, in terms of bringing them back. And okay, if yes, then what kind of aid are we talking about? Once you get past that point though, it's fitting the pieces together and deciding what you do from a roster standpoint. 
the bigger programs are getting pressure from the opposite direction, uh, which, you know, we've discussed before on the show, but basically that, you know, you, as a power program, you kind of set a recruiting class expecting that, uh, if you're recruit, it's almost like if you're recruiting at the level you should, if you if you want to be competing for national titles, it is just part of doing business that you're going to have um, some guys get drafted high enough that they're never going to make it to campus, and that's just kind of part of doing business. And like I said, I think kind of a something you almost need to be doing every so often just to get to, to know that you're recruiting the right type, kind of kid, honestly, because threading the needle, finding a kid who's good enough. To really be a star for you who's not a draft risk is a hard needle to thread, and some are, are better than others at it. But uh, I say all that to say, uh, in this, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a transition to a conversation we were we were slated to have here. But I think um, there is an opportunity for a certain subset of mid-major teams to use this to their advantage in 2021. I don't think it it's a one-size-fits-all thing. I don't think you will see the entirety of you know, the RPI conferences, let's say 12 and below, I don't think you will see those teams all become, let's say, 25% more talented and better just because of this. I, I think it really runs the gamut. But for a, a certain subset, and this is kind of what I'm working on writing, is for a certain subset of, of mid-major programs that fit into this band of, of under this band of conditions, uh, things could really look up for them in 2021. And for this for the, the rest of them, I think this offseason kind of looks like um, any other, honestly. Um, and so the difference is there. I mean, I've, I've gotten um, answers all over the map. I've had conversations with several different mid and low major coaches over the last week or so. And, um, I you know, I talked to a coach that um, told me, you know, our administration within minutes was just like, we're going to do whatever. We're going to bring these kids back on the previous, the aid they had previously, no questions asked. We're going to make it work to, you know, a coach who said, yeah, no, we're not going over 11.7. Just just period, end of story there. Um, I've had some coaches, not surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, the same coach who told me our administration is committed to bringing back players on full aid uh, for or what they were receiving, I should clarify, what they were receiving the previous year. Um, that that coach also said, yeah, I've gotten verbal commitments from all of our seniors that they that they want to come back um, versus coaches who have told me like, yeah, we're looking at maybe half. Um, so that's been all over the gamut. And, and you know, uh, I, I think some of it comes down to, you know, obviously the administrative piece is important. And I, I had another coach tell me that I think schools are going to be in a position where they might have to choose between sports. And if you have a administrator who really values baseball, that could be good news for you. If you have an administration that doesn't value baseball or doesn't understand baseball, isn't a baseball, um, you know, hasn't, maybe hasn't been an administrator in previous stops, uh, at a school that really valued baseball. So just haven't had the exposure to it, uh, that could end up hurting you a little bit. So when we're talking about on the margins here, where seemingly small amounts of money can make a big difference in a budget. Those are the types of things that can really can really make a difference. So, um, so I think the following thing is true. If you are a program that fits for the mid-major level that fits under this umbrella, if you were a program that had momentum in 2020, you were already, you were off to a good start or your talent was better than it has been in years or ever, um, had a good senior group, um, that has now been expressed interest in returning. If you're recruiting at a fairly high level, and if you're able to, Take advantage of the pressure, the power five, just to use the shorthand, the power five is feeling of we've got all these freshmen coming to campus. 
Um, you know, we didn't have as much attrition in our recruiting class as we normally do. And we maybe need to move along some of these older players or these older players decide on their own to move along because they're getting pushed by these younger kids. If you're one of those mid-major programs able to pick off a transfer or two, I think that's the combination that really means that if you're a, a mid-major program that maybe was, and I'm putting in air quotes, just a regional team, you could be a team that maybe makes a deep run in June. If you're a mid-major team that um, competes regionally but not so much nationally, 2021, if you fit under those parameters, could be the year for you to make that jump. So again, if, if those things aren't true, if you don't have the administrative support, if you didn't really have a big senior class where you're going to be able to take advantage of having a bunch of 22 and 23-year-old full-grown men on your roster, um, that's not really the case. If you're not an attractive enough program to be able to give some of these Power 5 transfers a soft landing spot, I don't think that necessarily fits. Um, so it's not necessarily a cheat code for these mid-major programs to compete on a higher level. But if you assume that these programs compete best nationally when they're old and experienced and kind of their talent has hit its peak, um, there are opportunities in 2021. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all thing, like I said, but I do think there are a, a relatively small number of programs out there that I think we're going to see shine in 2021 because they just hit it just so in their building cycle and were able to take advantage of, of this unique time in college baseball. Yeah. I, I think that you're definitely going to have to be higher end mid major to really benefit from this because higher end mid majors typically have the better budgets. They, they typically, you know, are going to be with people that understand baseball. Uh, they, probably are better sourced in recruiting and more able to to acquire high-end transfers and you know have better facilities to attract them with and and have pipelines to the pros to attract them with and and all of those things you know i within conferences you're i i think you might see greater disparity than ever uh in, in terms of some of that stuff you know if you look at a, a conference like because I'm staring at it right now, the Big East, where you have a, already a pretty defined top half and bottom half of that league. You know, it, I think it's going to be difficult to to break into that next year if you're not already in the top half. The the, the top half schools are just going to be what they are. Uh, and and I also think though, in, in terms of that, you know, you look at some of the the better mid majors, and uh, you know, you think about you know a, a, a school like a Wofford that, that fit a lot of the things Joe was just describing in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of advancement in, in the last few years, some a re really nice momentum this year. I know from talking to Todd and Donato before this whole thing started that he thought that most of his seniors were going to want to come back. Well, they have eight seniors, if you count the, the red shirts. And so it, are, are they then going to be able to commit you know, any transfers or are they just going to be trying to kind of run with what they had in 20? Are they going to just basically be trying to run that back? That's that that is also going to be interesting because maybe a, a team that had fewer seniors is a little in a little bit better shape than a team, uh, you know, again, within that same conference, Samford had 13, you know, and I don't think all 13 are going to come back just that's way too many to, to think that all of those kids are going to do it. But, you know, in, in that case, you know, do you, 
you know, do you then have the ability to go out and, and grab a transfer? And the other thing with all of this is, is that, you know, if you're, if the draft is going to be smaller, then, you know, some of the bigger conference teams just aren't going to lose kids that they would lose in an ordinary year. And, you know, so they might end up being older because they might pick, you know, an older veteran player that they understand how good they are over a younger player, whether that was a freshman this year or who didn't play much, or if that is a player, you know, in the incoming class that kind of gets squeezed out of this whole deal. So everyone is going to be older. So I don't know that just being older as a mid-major is going to matter as much, you know, unless we're talking about the schools that are going to have the most players drafted, like Arizona State, like Georgia, uh, you know, or a school like Florida and Vanderbilt and LSU that just, you know, traditionally pump out pro players and are going to continue to do that no matter how big the, the MLB draft is. You know, schools are going to be older. East Carolina is going to be older, you know, and, you know, schools like that are going to be older. So is just being older, is that now a competitive advantage or does that just make you like everyone else in college baseball? Um, that That's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. You know, this is something that, that we often talk about with BYU in terms of, of kids coming off of missions and, and, and being older because they, you know, took two years to, to go do their, their, their mission and are now like 23 year olds. Um, they, they have seen the, the effect of that, but if everyone is just a little bit older, maybe it won't matter that some mid-major school has eight seniors on their roster because, you know, the entirety of, of the, the major conference schools also have half a dozen seniors on their roster. So I don't know that that's going to be interesting in, in terms of how all of that plays out. Yeah, I think it just goes back to a phrase we've said a lot over the last couple weeks. We just don't know. And there, I mean, there's so many there's so many moving pieces here because some of these, you know, frankly, just to tie it back to the conversation we had a few minutes ago, some of these programs that I have in mind and I, I, I won't necessarily mention them explicitly just because we don't know the circumstances. And, and, and so it would just be me flying totally blind. But there's some programs that you have in mind that could possibly make that jump. Um, that might be having internal conversations that says, you know, that, that basically more or less, whether explicit or implicit, says, you know, we can't we can't bring these guys back. And they're going to be starting from maybe not quite scratch, but something like it. And so there are, is a lot still to be a lot still to be decided out there. And um, there are just so many there's going to be I think there's going to be waves of this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Don't need necessarily need to relitigate, but uh, there are just going to be so many waves of this. I mean, we've got these initial. Uh, the transfer portal has has more or less just opened, if you will. I mean, there's already a, a lot of names in there, but that's going to continue. S- some kids are going to find landing places sooner than others. Theoretically, some of the kids who are in the transfer portal could sign as undrafted free agents. They'll come out of the transfer portal, maybe after they'd already committed somewhere or it, it committed on paper anyway. Um, so, I mean, really, this this could be something where we, we just have waves of this, whereas in a typical offseason – you kind of have the draft and then you've got transfers. Sure. Uh, not to the extent we'll have this year though, you know, you've got some transfers and then you've got the draft and that's really kind of all she wrote. Whereas those two things are still happening this year, but they're just going to be happening. The player movement at the college level because of those two things, I think will be on a order of magnitude greater than, than anything we've really ever seen. 
we haven't talked about this, and, but I just kind of want to get your initial thoughts on it, Joe. If you were a first-year coach this year, is this good or is this bad? Like, is is this good because you got, in essence, kind of a trial run and now you can find out, like, you know, you get the, the same players back and you get to do it again with a little more knowledge? You got a month's worth of games in? Or is it bad because now it might make it harder for you to, uh, you know, start reshaping the roster because you have more players coming back in terms of juniors and seniors and, and the, you know, maybe they, they start to squeeze out some of the new players that you were expecting to bring in, whether that's from the, the junior college or, or the freshman ranks. I think it's mostly good. I, I'm trying to avoid giving you the answer of it depends because I think that is the right <laughs> answer, right? Like if you really, if you have a youngish team and you really liked what you had on the roster, you're probably pretty thrilled about it because you're like, okay, you know, I, I know what I have here and I know I've been recruiting well. So some of these kids that are coming in, will be able to compete right away and fill in some gaps and what have you. And if you, you know, we're kind of, to your point, kind of nonplussed about what you had on the roster, you're, you're thinking, Oh, I was really kind of hoping that next year would be a little bit of a, a year of turnover. So we could really start building in the direction that I want to be building. So to avoid giving that answer, which I guess I just kind of gave in a backdoor way, I think it's mostly good because I, I do think for those coaches that really like what they had in their first year, I think they'll basically just get to run it back, but they'll have a better idea of what they have. The players will have a better idea of what to expect and what the expectations are. I think that's all positive. And if you're a coach that was kind of um, trying to turn the roster over and kind of, you know, turn it to use the phrase, turn a cruise ship around, which happens slowly. I think because there's going to be so much player movement as it is, I think you're going to have more of an opportunity than you maybe um, might, might expect to be able to still do some of that stuff. Maybe you don't, you know, have as much turnover on the roster as you would have otherwise liked, but I just think there's going to be such an opportunity for player movement this off season. And that's going to be something that a lot of, that is on a lot of players minds that if you're bringing in a big recruiting class behind some of those players who might be towards the end of their careers, I think you're still going to get a pretty decent amount of player movement that you're looking to get. So I think on balance, I think it's a net positive if you're a first if you were a first year head coach in 2020 certainly there will be examples on both sides of that spectrum but i just think if you really like what you had i think it's a positive outright and i don't think it's quite as bad as you might think if you were really trying to turn your roster over just because i think you're still going to have the opportunity uh, to affect some change on the roster as it is given the chaos that we're going to see yeah i think that that's a good point that i maybe haven't been thinking about the uh you know it the there's a greater ability to turn over some of the roster with experienced players instead of just, uh, you know, going to the traditional uh, locations, you know, junior college and, and, and high school. Now you have, you, know, you might have some more experienced players uh, coming of, uh, onto the, into the transfer portal that you might be able to, uh, to take advantage of that. That is uh, that is a good point. That That's something I'm very interested to see. And I, I need to talk to more first, first year coaches about this now that they've, uh, had a little bit of a chance to to digest this. I you're right. I mean, of course, it's going to vary by situation, but you know that's uh, that's something I think about. You know, you spend all this time. You know, once you take the job, envisioning how your first year is going to go, and you know what you're going to learn in that first year, and how you're going to try and you know 
you know, take what you learned that year and then apply it to, to year two and, and figure out what you need to figure out so you can move forward as a program. And, uh, well, you only got a quarter of the season in. So now what do you do? So I, that, that's, uh, that's kind of a personal fascination of mine. Um, one more thing that I wanted to mention that has stood out to me as I've been collecting data on where these seniors are is that the Pac-12 really does not have seniors. Um, the the Pac-12 for thir- for for uh, o- there are 11 teams in, in the Pac-12. They have 31 true seniors and just 12 redshirt seniors. So that's 43, uh, you know, overall. And you know that's that's less than four seniors per team. That's the lowest I, I've seen of any conference. And I think that speaks to one how good the Pac-12's junior class was last year. Uh, that just a lot of those players went off and, and got taken in the draft. But I also think it speaks to something that you know we've kind of seen anecdotally that I don't have data to back up, um, or at least didn't before this year, and, and one year is not enough, but that the Pac-12 kind of struggles to hold on to its seniors versus schools in the Southeast particularly, but also in the Big Ten, that you know they the the culture is such that they want to, it seems like kids are more willing to, to delay going off into pro ball to continue to play in the environments they play in, particularly in the Southeast, but also just to be college students in, you know, big time sports schools that, you know, if you can, you know, LSU, I think back when they, to the various players they've been able to bring back for senior years or just extra years if they've been draft eligible uh, sophomores like Jerry Pochet and Antoine Duplantis and Zach Watson and Zach Hess just in recent years. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm no, I know I'm forgetting a couple. Uh, Greg Dykeman did, did the same thing. Uh, Kramer Robertson, uh, to an extent, you know, those players opted to continue playing at LSU partially because they wanted to play in the box. And partially because I guess being a college student in Baton Rouge is fun. Like I, I have no experience on, on either of those things, but um, it, it does seem that that's a draw that the Pac-12 schools kind of struggle to replicate. And so I don't know what that means for the conference next year. If they have less seniors than than they had this year, wasn't already wasn't starting to be uh, a great year in the Pac. Uh, we, we certainly talked about that while the season was going on. And now not only do you not have that many seniors, but a school like Arizona state, which was having, you know, its best season in, you know, five, six years, probably more than that, uh, is going to get really hit hard in the draft. So that's something to look at. Uh, I think that's something the, the big West and, and the WCC probably are looking at considering how well they started. Uh, but that's a, uh, that's a big picture item that, that those numbers did jump out to me that the, the PAC 12 is going to have less seniors. They, they have less seniors already. So if being older matters next year, the PAC 12 is going to be coming at this from a worse place. I mean, and perhaps, I, I mean, I, I agree. I'm trying to formulate what I'm trying to say here, but on the flip side of that though, is I think some of the financial situations in the PAC 12 is well documented, whether it's drawn from 
the Pac-12 network not being the the success of some other league networks, notably the the SEC and, and Big Ten networks. Um, so you know perhaps those Pac-12 schools are a little bit spared from having a little bit of egg on their face with maybe not being as open about. You've got seniors, bring them on back. You know, we'll put them back on the aid they were on. I don't know that that would have happened. Let me be very clear. Like, that is not reported. That is just me spitballing here. But um, given the way the things in the Pac-12 have sometimes gone recently, um, I think that's a scenario that could have played out that way where, uh, you know, if you if they were a league that had a lot of seniors coming back, that maybe they don't get brought back in the same way they are in some other leagues. Again, I don't know. But uh, so I agree with you. Um, they are coming at it from a disadvantage of, of just not having that option for a lot of guys. But maybe that also is um, saving some of these schools and from having difficult conversations with some players that might have otherwise expected to be able to just run it back. I mean, it also could put them in a more advantageous position to take transfers. Um, we'll see. But, uh, you know, just because they won't have the roster crunch, obviously it doesn't really help financially, but... Uh, if they have less of a roster crunch than some other places, and also Pac-12 schools are less likely to over-recruit, um, I'm not even sure they're allowed to, uh, than schools in the Southeast that, like, they they might, it, it might hurt them in one way, but it might help them in another. So it, it's just something that, that jumped out at me while I was uh, pulling these numbers. Now, one other thing that we wanted to talk about is that while the season is over and therefore the top 25 as you might typically think of it is also over uh, joe and i are continuing to crank out a top 25 every monday and we intend to do this basically until there's a new until there's a preseason top 25 uh we're, we're going to have a new top 25 at baseball america every monday and the last two weeks we looked at the best individual performances of the season both on the hitting side uh, and, and on a pitching side and you know, you, you had a lot of familiar names on those lists. Nick Gonzalez, I think, was on there like three different times on the offensive side. Uh, Bryce Jarvis appeared a couple times on the pitching side. And uh, you know, we, we managed to find a home for Spencer Torkelson's five-walk game, including four intentional walks in one night. Uh, we, we, we got a lot of the, the typical players in there. And Joe, while you were putting those lists together, since you did the bulk of that work, um, did did anything jump out at you while while you were looking through these these best individual performances of the abbreviated 2020 season? Yeah, I mean, first off, uh, to your point about us doing a top 25 every week, basically until we have an actual top 25. Do I can't wait until like early December when we're like the best 25 infield singles of the 2020 season. On that that's... note, <laughs> if you guys have ideas, we have ideas, but like there are, I don't know. 35 weeks, however many weeks there are, there are a lot of them between now and then. So we need lots of ideas. So if you have things you want to see us rank 25 of as they relate to college baseball, please let us know at Ted Cahill at Joe Healy BA. Yeah. I mean, the more absurd, the better, frankly, it doesn't mean we'll do it like if they're really absurd, but uh, I don't know. Like I, I think there will be opportunities for moments of, of levity with this, but, uh, but yeah, so we, we've got a lot of these to do, but we're committed, absolutely committed to doing them no matter how hard we have to uh, have to dig, but uh, back on topic. I mean, uh, I, so what, what I noted was actually that first of all, the pitching ones were a lot easier to do in terms of finding them and ranking them uh, just because I think, I was trying to think about why this is, and I think part of it is just that there's only so many metrics on the pitching side. There's how long did you go in the game, how many hits and runs and walks did you allow, how many guys did you strike out. 
And that's kind of it. Like, there are some other things around the margins. Like, it's impressive that Bryce Jarvis threw a perfect game, struck out 15 on 94 pitches. Like, that's like a nice little side item there. But really, you're talking innings, hits, runs, walks, strikeouts. I mean, that's really all there is to it. Whereas offensively, there's so much more to consider. There's how many hits in in a certain amount of at-bats did you get? Did you go – you know, there's a difference in going three for six and six for six. Um, You know, there's obviously – home run totals into individual games of, of a lot of home runs. And, and the list we put together is, is kind of slanted in that direction. Um, Cause eventually you just have to kind of make a decision on what you value. Um, but some hitters don't hit home runs. And so how do you value what they're doing? So, you know, we tried to put some, some items on the list of, of guys with four stolen bases, for example, or, you know, uh, which Jace Mercer of, of Cincinnati is on the list for he went one for one with an RBI double, walked four times, scored five runs and stole four bases. Like that's dominating a game without having big time power numbers. So it was a little bit harder on the offensive side to kind of set up a value system of how you rank those. But the other thing about the pitching side is that it, it was a little more star studded. I mean, you look at the list of 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 pitchers here and you, you know, it leads off with Dane Acker. Bryce Jarvis is on here a couple times. There's Nick Swinney from NC state. Adam Seminaris kind of became more of a big name with how long beach state was, was, was playing. Asa Lacey's inside the top 10 here. Uh, Sam Weatherly is, was number 10. He's a guy who was emerging. Cole Wilcox for George is on here. Jack Leiter, Trenton Denholm, Tommy Mace, Max Meyer. So you go on and on at Reed Detmers. So there was a lot of star power on the pitching list. Um, Whereas on the offensive list, I mean, it was kind of fun to kind of talk about some offensive players that that aren't big names. Now we had the big names. You're right, Nick Gonzalez on this list three times. Uh, Hunter Goodman from Memphis was is is a, a guy that that folks know. Spencer Torkelson, we found a place on this list. Dylan Dingler's a name, you know. But we also had, you know, in the top five, Murray State's Jordan Cozart, for example, for his five for six three home run game against Austin P. Um, you know, there's there's. Uh, Louisiana Monroe's Ryan Huminiuk, Troy's William Sullivan, UTSA's Leighton Berry. So it was it was a different challenge in trying to find these performances and rank them. But at the same time, it was kind of, um, especially for me, someone who has like the, the bias I have for sometimes the smaller leagues and teams. But um, it was kind of nice to sh- shine a light on some of these performances that were a little more out of the limelight. Whereas I feel like on the pitching side, it was a lot of the names – you would expect dominating in the way you would expect. And so I'm not, I haven't really examined that and and why that is necessarily. Maybe there's an obvious reason I'm just missing on that, but I I was struck by how much more star studded in a traditional sense, the pitching side was versus the offensive side. Well, I mean, I I think one explanation for that is just how good the, uh, the, the pitching class is in college baseball right now that if you go over and look at our draft rankings and anything that Carlos Colazzo has written about the draft, there's a lot of talk about how good this crop of college pitchers is. So I think that's showing, and, and a lot of those guys were off to really fast starts. There were guys that were moving up, uh, you know, like a Bryce Jarvis, but, you know, Lacey was doing exactly what was expected of him. And, you know, so was Reed Detmers and, uh, you know, several other guys uh, had, had definitely just, performed as as had been expected and, and several others were, were were moving up and uh the the hitting side isn't as good there are it, it's really good at the top so no one is talking about it being a bad group of college hitters uh when you have martin gonzalez and torkelson like no, no one is going to complain about that but i don't know that there's the depth 
Uh, you know, you get past those guys, and I'd throw Kerstad into that mix. And then, you know, Garrett Mitchell's a really nice player, but in terms of producing big-time stat lines, he's not going to do that. I'm not sure he hit a home run this season. Pretty sure he didn't. Um, so that that's it's just kind of a different kind of player in terms when, when you go to put these things together. So I, I do think that, that that maybe played a part, but some of it also may have just been a little random. You know, we, we saw four weeks of baseball is all, and, uh, you know, there is randomness to no hitters and, and perfect games and the like. And it's also probably a little easier for some of those players to put some of the, the, the pitchers to, to put up gaudy stat lines because, you know, if it's Reed Detmer's turn to start, it doesn't matter who he's starting against. You know, he's going to go in there and Dan McDonald is going to let him pitch, you know, his allotted innings for that day, regardless of what's happening. Uh, and there's not a whole lot that the opposing team can do about that. Whereas if you don't feel like interacting with Spencer Torkelson as an opposing team, you don't have to. You just have to wave him to first base. And, you know, while we did put that in there when that was all New Mexico State did one midweek game, uh, you know, that that does you can I think you can pitch around players more easily than you can, uh, you know, do things with pitchers. And so some of those hitters really need conference play where they actually have to get pitched to to or are more likely to get pitched to a little more, um, you know, some of them less likely to get pitched to. But, you know, the the. Uh, level of competition is a little more equal, and so you, you're a little more willing to challenge them, and, and then the hitters get to have have their days. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting that that's that's the way that turned out for you. Yeah, I get that's a good point about being pitched around. It was something I was considering as you were as you were talking there. I because you know Torkelson gets on that list just because he was walked so often in that one game, and many most of them intentional. You know, if he gets walked twice and he goes one for three that's never making the list and i well, actually but you don't you don't get a historic walk rate by just getting walked a couple times that like that's the thing with him yeah no doubt no doubt so yeah that, that's a good point about that and and um you know which, which actually you know in some ways makes it all the more impressive that you know nick gonzalez did what he did considering there was probably even more motivation to pitch to him carefully given that he has some protection but like he doesn't like nick gonzalez does not have trevor halver hitting around him so he has um, tristan peterson though he does have tristan peterson that's that's what i meant by some protection there but certainly not the depth so um that's a good that point is well taken i mean you you can be a little more careful with the, the offensive pieces and and um you know it's a different threshold too you know offensively i mean i that's i i so i on our baseball America Slack, I slacked Teddy over the weekend and was like, what I've learned from putting together these top 25 offensive performances that every player in college baseball had at least one game this year where they went three for five with two home runs, because at some point it was just kind of trying to parse through, um, you know, which three for five with two home run games was more impressive. And that's kind of why I started to look for other types of performances to, to include on the list where with pitching, it felt like there were maybe a little more, degrees of separation between guys either more or less strikeouts or a deeper start versus a shorter one a shutout versus one or two runs so maybe they're just more different the differentiators there as well yeah i definitely see that you know when i was looking at it um you know i felt like the top dozen or so pitching performances were (laughs) a cut above and you know that it's hard to find that separation and hitting just because of the way, uh, you know, we measure hitting statistics and because of the randomness of, of the thing. And, you know, the, 
hidden uh, kind of goofy game that, that everyone points to as being really cool, and I, I certainly do this as well, is, you know, the the cycle. But, you know, hidden for the cycle isn't necessarily, uh, you know, it, it's so random. Uh, it, it's like I love it. I'm not trying to downplay anyone that did hit for the cycle, but it's an entirely random performance when you really come down to it and, and not necessarily any better than hitting three home runs and one double. In fact, it's not as good as that. So, uh, you know, it, it can be a little hard, I think, to, to track some of those, whereas starting pitching is one of probably the easiest things to track statistically. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned cycles because there were actually a couple of other um, – players on my master list that I started with that had hit for the cycle. And that was actually kind of a philosophical stance I made, which is originally I, I kind of tentatively had them in the list. Cause like, well, they hit for the cycle and that's more notable. And that was the, that's the key word there more notable than just this guy who went three for five with two home runs. But then I thought about it. And I was like, well, to your point, you know, if you turn that single in the cycle into another home run, that's objectively a better game. Um, not as quirky, not as interesting, I guess, in some ways, uh, not as suspenseful during the game whenever you have a player tracking a cycle, but um, just an objectively more valuable game is if you turn turn that single into anything else in terms of a hit, um, it becomes a better game. And so once I kind of established that, I was like, okay, well, the cycle's on its own. Now, there was a game in there where Nick Gonzalez hit a cycle, for example, but that was just kind of secondary to the fact that as part of the cycle, he also had three home runs or two home runs or whatever it was and drove in a boatload of runs. So there were other aspects of it there. Yes, so you can check those out over at BaseballAmerica.com. They are interesting, uh, maybe even thought-provoking for some of you. We'll see. Uh, Let us know your thoughts. And and again, if you do have ideas on what you would want to see us rank, we're, we're open to suggestions because... Like I said, the intention is to do this until we have a preseason top 25. Uh, maybe we'll take a week off for like Christmas or something. But basically every week, every Monday over at BaseballAmerica.com, we'll have a new top 25. So uh, let us know if there's anything in particular you would like to see us rank. Like I've mentioned, the next edition of the Baseball America College Podcast will be on Friday. It will be a more retrospective look at a classic game. And Joe, why don't you tell the listeners what game we're watching so that they can do their homework before Friday's game if they want to watch along with us. Yeah, it's the 1994 College World Series championship game. It's Oklahoma versus Georgia Tech. Um, It is a a kind of a classic college baseball matchup insofar as you've got one team that really has big-time names, in this case Georgia Tech's Nomar Garcia-Para, Jason Veritek, and and Jay Payton, versus an Oklahoma team that, that did have big leaguers, you know, Russ Ortiz, Mark Redman, um, but did not have uh, those big, bold-faced names in the same way that um, Georgia Tech does. And yet, Oklahoma ends up, uh, spoiler alert, winning the national title in that game. So um, it's, it's cool because it's another mid-90s game, uh, which, you know, just kind of hard to come by, especially in the sport of college baseball, which is not as well documented on television and in, in video in general as, as college football and basketball, for example. Um, but also it's just kind of, again, kind of one of those classic things that, that college sports kind of provides where at least on paper, it looks like there's a little bit of a disparity between the two teams, but the, um, the team that you feel like is maybe a little bit under talented, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful to the Sooners, but that was maybe under talented on paper ends up coming through in the end. 
um, and creating a really, uh, really good story. And I believe, and I'll, I'll have to go back and I'll do what I did last week too, or two weeks ago and read, uh, in the head of the class book, read the, the gamer that Jim Callis wrote for that 94 title game to kind of get a, a different perspective on it. But, um, I seem to remember Oklahoma actually being like a, like, even though that was true that maybe they didn't have the star power of some other teams in the field, I think they like buzzsawed through the CWS that year. I think they were one of those teams that really just, I believe uh, that's correct. I looked at the Omaha World Herald story uh, earlier today as I was doing some research, and uh, that, that definitely seemed to be the gist of, of what that was about, that they uh, they had really just kind of dominated, at least in Omaha, probably on the way to Omaha as well. Full, full disclosure, I skimmed this story. Uh, but I think that they won, like, 55 56 games or something and just you know it wasn't it wasn't the the dominant pro prospect team but it was just a really good college baseball team that was clearly the best team in omaha that year yeah it's it's uh so yeah it's a good one i'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. i have not watched it uh before and certainly not um um you know, not uh, not yet as part of this project. Will this week? So looking forward to that. Their, their head coach at the time at at Oklahoma was Larry Koshell, uh, who was an interesting case in and of in and of itself. Um, he was a coach. We've talked about this a little bit with Augie Garrido in the past. A coach that was a little bit ahead of his time. And now in in today's college baseball, it is not uncommon for a coach to come up in one part of the country either as a player or early in his career as a coach, and then go to another part of the country you know, from being a volunteer assistant to a full-time assistant, then he becomes a head coach in a totally different part of the country, or he goes back to where he started, what have you. Uh, That didn't really typically, that typically wasn't the case because for one, coaches weren't making the amounts of money that were, could really entice coaches to go from one part of the country to the other. And also just, it was a much more regional game, even so, even more so than it is now. But Larry Cochelle was really ahead of the game in terms of that. He, you know, started off in the Midwest and coached it, uh, what was then known as Kansas State Teachers College, um, and then spent a couple of years at Creighton, and then went out to coach Cal, Cal State LA, then came back to uh, the Plains, if you will, and coached at Oral Roberts, then went and spent one year, just one year, at Northwestern, then took the head coaching job at Cal State Fullerton. I believe that were the, those were the three years that Augie was at Illinois. He was the head coach at Cal State Fullerton, and then went and coached Oklahoma starting in 1991, um, until 2005. So he was kind of ahead of, uh, the time in terms of being a coach who, uh, coached all over the country and was really looking for, for opportunities. Um, so just kind of a, a, a strange coaching path that you just don't see in, uh, or you didn't see at that time in college baseball. I like how Oklahoma kind of collects those guys. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, like Sonny Galloway, I mean, maybe it wasn't a, a unique path, but he was certainly a character. And, you know, Skip Johnson was at Texas under Augie for years as his assistant coach. And then when Augie is forced out slash retires, he, you know, defects to their, you know, arch rival and, and becomes the, the Sooners pitching coach until... Uh, Pete Hughes is fired and, and Skip is promoted in his place. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just very much cherry picking right now, but Oklahoma, interesting coaching. 
uh, trajectories. I feel well, like. and, and Pete Hughes wasn't exactly like a typical Oklahoma that's, hire. That's a good I point, mean, too. He's a Northeastern guy who was at BC and Virginia Tech and has, you know, after Oklahoma, now he's at, at Kansas State, which is kind of a fit given that, that that's in the same region, but certainly wasn't a guy that you would, you know, have pegged as a uh, future Oklahoma head coach uh, given his background. Yeah, that is uh, that is definitely a good point. And, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a interesting baseball place. They obviously have had some some pretty significant heights. And, and this is probably the, the height of the Sooners program. And uh, to bring this full circle, we'll see if the, the 2021 seniors with all of their seniors coming back uh, are, are able to, to make a run at Omaha again. As, as this team did in 1994. So we will be talking much more in depth about that on Friday. We will have a guest. Uh, I think I said on the last podcast, I was pretty sure who the guest was going to be, but we're still trying to lock it down. And we remain in that that same boat as, as we stand here today. So uh, we'll be back here with a still TBD guest, but I, I feel pretty good about who it will be or who I believe it will be. So check in on the Baseball America College podcast at the end of the week to... Uh, to hear our discussion about that 1994 College World Series championship game. And if you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting apps, be that Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcasts, you'll get that right in your phone uh, when we when we upload it. And while you're there subscribing, if you want to leave a rating and or a review, we would greatly appreciate that as well. It, it uh helps us to understand what we're doing well, what we what you uh, like about the show, and helps other people find the podcast. So we, we appreciate it if you can take the time to do that. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We have plenty of content for you throughout this week over at BaseballAmerica.com. Uh, so please check that out. We, uh, we really appreciate everyone that's continuing to engage in our writing, in our podcasts, whatever content we're throwing out at, at you. Uh, at, we, we know that without a season, you might be a little less inclined to, to come over and, and see what we're up to. Uh, so those of you that, that are continuing to do that, we, we greatly appreciate that. Uh, we're, uh, we're hoping that we can provide you know, a little bit of uh, distraction from everything else that, that's going on. That's, that's the role we're used to providing in sports. So we're, we're doing that to the best of our ability, even, even without games. So until Friday, I want to thank you all for listening. Thanks to Joe for joining me. I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll be back here to talk with you on Friday on the Baseball America College Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.